Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Suddenly, we want more. More goods, as we saw in the strong retail sales numbers on Friday, and more workers, as we saw in those disappointing jobs numbers last week. But the supply isn't there yet, as we saw this week in consumer prices, with core CPI coming in at a whopping 3%, well above expectations. This time, the markets didn't take it all in stride the way they have in the past with the stock market having its worst day since February after those consumer price numbers hit us on Wednesday, only to bounce back on Thursday, while 10-year bond yields climbed up toward 1.7 and five-year break-evens pointed toward more inflation yet to come. The Fed has done a wonderful job. They've done a great job in supervising the banking system, which has performed beautifully during this two-year period. And the sharp reductions in short-term interest rates have done a terrific job of stimulating housing and autos. They may be done, um, but we think they will wait a while before they raise short-term interest rates again. I think they want to make sure that the labor markets have stabilized. That was Abby Joseph Cohen on Wall Street Week back in 2002. And in some ways, things haven't changed all that much. Then, as now, the Fed is keeping interest rates low to stimulate the housing market. Then, as now, it's trying to strengthen the jobs market. But when do you know that it's time to ease off of that gas pedal? That's the question a lot of people are asking. And Dallas Fed President Rob Kaplan says that while it may be too early, the time is coming as we see demand kick in. So this is a a contrast to the Great Recession where we had a very slow recovery because of sluggish demand. Households weren't spending. In in the current situation, we've got substantial demand. Households are spending. Uh, But what what we're seeing uh, uh, from our contacts across the board is supply issues. And my team, to their credit, had warned me for the two weeks leading up to this report 
that there was a meaningful chance it could be disappointing because we were seeing uh, our estimate is something like uh, 2 million 55 year old uh, and above workers have, have either uh, retired on schedule or accelerated their retirement. Got a million and a half working mothers uh, that are home with their kids. Uh, lack of childcare, school reopening is an issue. And yeah, we are hearing broadly, uh, employers are trying to hire, but they're struggling to compete with unemployment benefits. And then the last thing we're hearing from goods companies is they're cutting back production runs because they lack inputs. And they've even done some temporary layoffs, they've been telling us. Uh, and we saw all that because, but they're, they're going to be temporary because they lack the ability to have full production runs. So we saw all that in this jobs report. And to what extent did you see specific issues in your region, in Texas and northern Louisiana and New Mexico? We, we saw all these issues, uh, I can tell you, across the board. And, you know, we do extensive outreach here, and we've redoubled it since the pandemic. I'm not only talking to businesses, but I talk a lot to community leaders, heads of Head Start across our district, and they've been the ones warning us. Uh, skill training pipelines have uh, have been reduced. They, they can't get people to take money to enter skills training. They're seeing many workers who are taking unemployment they're reluctant to enter full-time jobs. They may be doing day work as a replacement, which allows them to continue to collect unemployment. And again, we're seeing elevated high school dropouts. And you notice in this jobs report, one group that had an increase in their employment was 16 to 19 year olds. And normally you'd say that might be good, but a number of them were a little alarmed by our high school dropouts that I think they would be better off in the economy in the long run would be better off if they finished high school got their GED at least so they could then eventually get into skills training. But we're, we're seeing all these trends. I suspect that any of these decisions, whether to go back to work or not, are influenced by several factors, not just one factor. But talk about That's the right. unemployment insurance specifically. There was a time, go a year back, when we wanted people to stay home uh, for safety concerns, for health concerns. We wanted to pay them to stay home. That time is passing if it hasn't already passed. Does the impetus for enhanced unemployment insurance really fade as it's safer to get back? I think we want people to go back to work now, don't we? So I'll answer it this way because I'll stay out of the, the political aspects of this. What we're hearing from contacts, you know, if you go back six months or more, obviously, or even three months, there were a number of sectors that hadn't yet reopened. And a number of their workers didn't have the option to come back. As sectors reopen, for example, dining, we're unusual in Texas. We, we are now exceeding pre-pandemic levels. But still, movie theaters are just starting to reopen. I know in other parts of the country, New York, restaurants are just starting to fully reopen. Uh, you you want to help people that have lost their jobs. But as we more fully reopen and, and we want to incentivize people to come back either to the jobs they left or to other jobs, uh, contacts are telling me this is a, a real issue. One of the numbers that people paid attention to is actually the increase in wages, how much people were making. Uh, given I, that need to get those people off the sidelines, are we looking at possible wage inflation just around the corner? We're hearing across the board for unskilled workers as well as skilled workers, but, 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 but notably unskilled workers. Businesses tell us they're either offering higher wages, but that's not doing it to get people back. And they're offering bonuses, you know, signing bonuses. And even with that, I think based on our, our work, you would have seen a much greater hiring in leisure and hospitality uh, than we saw 
if uh, if they were able to lure more workers. In other words, the demand from these businesses to hire is greater than you saw in the uh, growth and employment there. Thanks to Dallas Fed President Rob Kaplan. Coming up, cryptocurrencies take a hit from an unexpected source, advocate Elon Musk. Our crypto experts, Jillian Tett of the Financial Times and Peter Krauss of Aperture Investors, take us through the climate challenges of Bitcoin. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Elon Musk has done a lot to boost cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Dogecoin. But suddenly he's on the other side of the trade, joking about Dogecoin being a hustle on Saturday Night Live and then reversing his decision to accept Bitcoin in payment for Teslas. We talked with Jillian Tett, chair of the editorial board and editor-at-large U.S. for the Financial Times, and Peter Krauss, CEO of Aperture Investors, about whether the setbacks are just a blip or reflect something deeper. In a nutshell, well, duh, because we have warned at the Financial Times now for many months that cryptocurrency is filthy. And there's really just two key stats you need to know to understand why. Firstly, about 70% of cryptocurrency has been mined using the computer algorithms in China, overwhelmingly using Chinese coal, mostly in the west of the country. And secondly, the sector has grown so rapidly that it now has a carbon footprint people calculate around the size of, say, Sweden. Um, And that is worrying. I mean, there have been any number of activists, scientists, Um, investors pointing this out and pointing out the tremendous irony that Tesla has been branded as ESG friendly, good for environmental, social and governance, even while it's got this filthy footprint in Bitcoin. So, so Peter, there's more than a little irony here, right? Because at least we tend to think of people who tend to invest in crypto as being very environmentally conscious. And it turns out they may be polluting the environment, warming up, emitting a lot of greenhouse gases. Yeah, look, I I mean, we spend an enormous amount of time every week trying to think about ESG conscious investing. We design investment processes. We have information and data. Uh, we look to uh, inquire as to management's views on ESG and how they deal with those different conditions. And investors are demanding, in particular in Europe, but all over the world, 
investment portfolios that are ESG friendly and in fact, even ESG compliant with some of the new regulations in Europe. So it is in fact a paradox for investors to be investing in Bitcoin, which is exactly the opposite of that, not even close. And more interesting to Jillian's point, if it continues to grow, if it continues to grow, the exponential effect on the use of poor use of energy, coal, dirty energy is palpable. And so I, I, I find it you know, kind of almost humorous that people are, are investing in Bitcoin, thinking that they're doing something that's uh, exciting. And at the same time, they're acting in exactly the opposite way that they want the rest of the world to behave. So, so Julian, that says one thing to people who want to buy or hold uh, cryptocurrencies. What does it say for the big banks? Because the big banks are getting some pressure, actually, to manage some funds that actually would include some crypto in it. We have JP Morgan, for example, this week coming out. So we're really going to get to zero emissions. Everyone wants to get to zero emissions. If they really want to do that, does that mean they can't hold crypto? Well, what I argue in the column in the Financial Times are three key points. Firstly, this shows that nobody can afford to ignore ESG risks, even if they have an ESG label on uh, of an asset. And essentially what you're seeing is a very fast moving sector where there aren't many binary situations. It's not static. It's often a question of trade-offs. And the only way for investors to cope is to take a holistic view and recognize they'll need to adjust. Secondly, though, in coming out of that point, in fact, there is now a scramble afoot in the crypto world to tackle these green issues or these dirty issues. And the United Nations just teamed up with the Rocky Mountain Institute and a group of fintech leaders to explore ways to try and deal with it. Two options. One, you change the computing processes to slash the amount of electricity they consume. And there's been a cryptocurrency this week called Chia launched to do just that. Secondly, you can try and source it from clean energy sources, say Icelandic hydroelectric power and create a registry. There are efforts along that way. But the third point is that regulators clearly need to start getting involved. I mean, the reason why someone like Elon Musk can have almost this Wizard of Oz-like um, effect on the crypto market is because it's opaque and unregulated and probably highly concentrated in its holdings. And there are efforts underway now amongst the regulators to exert more oversight, not just over the questions of um, market manipulation, but also money laundering. And frankly, every single big bank who's dealing with crypto or thinking about it and fund managers, whether it's Fidelity or Goldman Sachs, needs to throw their weight around it, uh, behind this process big time. And ironically, green issues might turn out to be the issue that causes everyone to rally together, even the libertarians. I just want to jump in on something to just inject another idea into the conversation. There, there are two uh, uh, issues around, around cryptocurrencies. One is the mining issue, which creates the sort of scarcity value and the desire to actually earn something for producing a new Bitcoin. And that, you know, that's the speculative aspect of Bitcoin and the spe speculative as aspect of cryptocurrency. But the more interesting aspect of cryptocurrency is not the fact that it is a speculative value, but that it's a mechanism by which you can actually trade, settle, and effectively record transactions immediately or instantaneously. That's the much more valuable part of crypto. And you don't need mining exercises and energy um, utilization in order to go after that. So I, I think you have to start thinking about unbundling the sort of speculative aspect of crypto, which frankly 
is has no value to it. And now we know it's dirty as it as it relates to the environment. And the actual value of crypto, which is a currency that settles immediately, instantaneously records a transaction and lowers the cost of transactions uh, in the world and is the most valuable part. And so I, I think this might be, to Jillian's point again, the sort of start of unpeeling the onion between the speculative aspects, which frankly are not that valuable, and what the true value of crypto could be over time. So, so Jillian, Peter says you can separate out the immediate settlement on the one hand from the speculative on the other. What about another aspect, which is the complete anonymity, which I think we saw this week in the Colonial Pipeline hack, actually, as we look at all these ransomware attacks, there have been almost 400 in 2020 alone on infrastructure. Could we have those ransomware attacks without crypto? If you had to actually write a check in your banking account, I'm not sure the ransomware would work. That's a great point, David. And I think the issue is not so much anonymity, but pseudonymity, that basically don't know who lies behind these accounts. You can track these accounts, and oddly enough, some law enforcement officials actually think there's a benefit to having this because they can actually see once you get inside the system, you know, where accounts are coming from. But pseudonymity is absolutely part of the issue. And again, going back to my point that actually green might provide a spark to actually get community support for more accountability and transparency. If you started to create a register of green versus dirty um, cryptocurrencies, that's the kind of thing that could actually put this on a more mature footing. That was Peter Krause of Aperture Investors and Jillian Tett of the Financial Times. Coming up, inflation was up this week and stocks and bonds were down, at least for part of the week. What does that mean for investors? We ask Catherine Keating of BNY Mellon. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It was a tricky week for investors as the market has been on a tear, even as some warned of gathering storm clouds. And this week, it felt like we just might be feeling some raindrops as well, with those CPI numbers coming on the heels of disappointing jobs numbers last week. So investors have to be asking themselves whether they should be reaching for the umbrella or even running to shelter. We asked Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon Wealth Management, whether investors are changing their strategy to hedge for inflation. Investors always have to be concerned about inflation because inflation is one of the things that can lead to the end of a business cycle, tightening rates, uh, recession, you know, bear markets. We don't see that yet. We actually agree um, with Chairman Powell that we should expect inflation and we should expect it to be transitory. There are a lot of inflationary forces at work in the market. We're reopening. Right? We wouldn't have been here together last May, and yet here we are. We're reopening. Um, and so you, we, we need to expect inflation, and we need to ex expect some surprises because the economy closed down in a very synchronized manner, but it's reopening in stages. And so we need to expect some of these surprises. And I, and I always think that Janet Yellen has a great way of making economics human, and she reminds us it's not just statistics, it's people's activity. And if I think of my own activity in April... I was representing the reopening of the economy and some of those sectors that really drove uh, the CPI increase. I, I'm grateful to be fully vaccinated. I was traveling on my first business trip, renting a car, flying on a plane, going to restaurants. Those were some of the sectors. As we address this question of transitory uh, against not transitory, which Jay Powell has talked about repeatedly, how informed should we be about how much money is sitting on the sidelines, particularly in households? There's a lot of money sitting out there that doesn't really have a way quite yet to express itself. Well, that's right. If you look at households, households are in very good shape, right? $3 trillion in household 
household bank accounts, savings accounts. You look at stimulus this year that's going to households, which will actually be twice as much as what went last year. You know, $600 billion last year, a trillion two this year. So households are in very good shape, which again is a good sign for the economy because if we think about the 2008 crisis, that's a crisis that really hit households in a different way because of the housing component of it. Households today are actually in very good shape. Uh, to what extent do people uh, run away from bonds in this environment? Because it seems like whatever happens, it doesn't seem like bonds will gain in value very much going out. Well, that's right. We, are, we have seen interest rates you know, decline for most of our investing lives, and now we're seeing them uh, begin to rise. And so there's always a role for bonds in the portfolio. It's a smaller role going forward. It's a smaller role because, as you note, returns are going to be much lower. But there's always a role, and we're broadening portfolios portfolios to get exposure to other things to make up for what you used to get from your bond portfolio. We're seeing some of the tech stocks get partic hit particularly hard. Now, they drove a lot of the market for a long time, uh, and they're still well up overall. But at the same time, what is the problem with tech when it comes to inflation? Is it just because there is, they're so richly valued that when people get nervous, they run away from it? Look, I think there are two things. I think the tech stocks really, um, you know, led the recovery because of the way we were spending our time last year, right? They really enabled us to keep the economy uh, open to a certain extent. So uh, you saw tech stocks, um, you know, get very high multiples because of that and also because investors were willing to pay for growth in a sector that was growing when you had so many sectors not growing. Now what you see is with interest rates rising, it actually reduces the present value of the cash flows and earnings of tech stocks. And so that's what you're seeing, a rotation, but it's a rotation into sectors that we should all be embracing, mid-cap, small-cap, value, non-U.S. stocks. We think all of these uh, will play good roles in the portfolio. So follow up on that. Who might benefit, actually, from inflation? For example, financials? So financials um, will benefit from inflation, and in particular, the difference between short-term and long-term, right? Um, so that's a sector that benefits. Um, energy often benefits from inflation. Um, so m many sectors benefit from higher rates. How concerned are your investors right now when you talk to them? Uh, mm -hmm. How worried are they? Because there's a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace right, right now. As you say, right. we've never seen this happen in our right. economy ever. Shut it down and That's bring right. it back. That's uh, right. How anxious are people out there? So if we talk to our clients, they really focus on three things. They focus on the economy because they're business people. They focus on the markets because they're investors, and they focus on taxes because they're taxpayers. And so um, our, our, our clients are sort of living the reopening of the economy as business people. They see the supply-demand imbalances as they're trying to hire and trying to get workers. Um, they've benefited, obviously, from the markets as markets have you know, tipped to all-time highs in recent weeks, and even now, still up nicely year-to-date. And so what we're, we're talking to them a lot about right now is taxes. They feel that that's much more uncertain. They know the, they know the proposals that have been um, uh, introduced by the Biden administration, but they're asking us, will they pass? There are very narrow majorities. If they pass, when will they be effective? How will it affect the market? So uh, one of the questions about tech, actually, that mm -hmm. I have is about taxes. Mm -hmm. Because if you've made a lot of money, at least on paper, by, mm -hmm. by uh, the, uh, the appreciation of the tech stocks, does it indicate maybe you should sell those right now and take the lower capital gains if you think it's around the corner? So what we tell our clients, we tell them two things. Number one, as an investor, time is your biggest advantage because markets tend to grow over time. So we say plan, don't panic. Do things that you would otherwise do for your portfolio. Tech stocks rose to be, you know, the five largest tech stocks rose to be something like 25% of the S&P 500. If you've got large concentrations, outsized positions, you might want to trim those. You might want to trim those for investment reasons, but also potentially for tax reasons. That was Catherine Keating of BNY Mellon Wealth Management. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers. This is Wall Street Week.
on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. So the markets were roiled this week by one thing, really, the prospect of inflation. And we're blessed to have with us the special Wall Street Week contributor from Harvard, Larry Summers, who was really the first to warn about this possibility way back when President Biden proposed his American Rescue Plan back in late January. So, Larry, welcome. Let me say, Jason Furman, an economist you know well, you respect, was on Bloomberg this week saying that no credible economist ever doubted that this was too much stimulus. I don't remember all those economists agreeing with you at the time. I don't know. I I didn't feel like I was echoing the conventional wisdom at uh, at the time. And David, I nobody knows yet. And it's too early to know. And the record of forecasters isn't uh, great. But I have to say that whether you look at average hourly earnings, whether you look at producer prices, whether you look at consumer prices, whether you look at direct measures of uh, labor shortage, whether you look at market expectations of uh, inflation, whether you look at survey expectations of inflation, I was on the worried side about inflation, and it's all moved much faster, much sooner than I had uh, than I had predicted, and I think that has to make us nervous going forward. Yeah, no question about it. At the same time, we have a number of people who continue to say it's not that big a problem. They have various reasons for that. One thing they say is it's just specific sort of kinks in the supply chain that it isn't a larger phenomenon. What do you say to them? So look, by definition, there are always going to be a few components of the CPI that grew rapidly in any given month. That's what the Carter economists said all through the creation of uh, the great uh, inflation. I think there's some things that are striking. If you look at core CPI this month, it grew faster than headline uh, CPI. That's exactly the opposite of what that idea would uh, tend to uh, predict. If you look at the pace of inflation, it seems to be uh, accelerating. What I'm struck by is how selective people are. I mean, the thing that leaps out at me when I do microeconomic analysis of the price indices 
is that house prices, by some measures, are up 18% over the last year, but the owner-occupied housing component of the CPI is up like 2%. And so that tells me that we're probably missing something large with respect to housing. And I think if people are seeing their house prices go up at 18%, before too long, they're going to be estimating that the amount they could rent their houses for is going to be going up uh, substantially. So the largest distortion I see in the numbers is uh, with respect to housing. You know, so many people commented on used car prices and used car prices, surely that's not a trend that's going to continue, but it's only a couple percent, if that, of the index. If you look at the monthly CPI, medical care was zero um, in the most recent reading. I don't believe for a moment that medical care prices are going to stay at zero, and that's a much larger component of uh, the CPI than uh, used car prices. So it may be that it's going to change. The other thing to say is, let's be clear, the core CPI grew at nine-tenths of a percent. That's an, in, that's an annual uh, inflation rate above 11 percent. So there's plenty of room for there to be a lot of transitory factor in it and for us still to have what would be an extremely serious problem of uh, inflation rising to the 4% range. So I don't think you can dismiss these figures. I also think that if you look at the hourly earnings figures, if you look at the producer price things, all the inputs, which have to do with future price increases, those seem to be uh, accelerating as well. So, Larry, what do you say to the Fed, frankly, who keeps saying it's transitory? And specifically, the argument, as I understand it, is, look, what we're seeing right now is the necessary reaction of economy coming back online. And once it gets back online, things will settle back down again. So this is just like a relatively short one-off. Look, anything's, anything's possible, and they could be right. But I always believe in government that the right strategy, indeed in life, the right strategy is to hope for the best and plan for the worst. And the Fed seems to be planning for a very benign scenario that we certainly can't uh, count on. And I don't think anybody at the Fed, Vice Chairman Clarida acknowledged this in the last day or two, thought that inflation would be anything like the number we saw in April. I certainly didn't see the slightest hint of a suggestion in anything that came from the Fed that we were going to be seeing wage growth figures pointing to um, wage growth relative, well above 5% uh, even for a single month. And look, uh, David, you have to make a judgment. Do we think from here that supply factors are going to be bigger than demand factors or vice versa. On the demand side, we have $2 trillion of savings overhang. We have $3 trillion of stimulus that's worked its way only partway through the system. We have the continuing consequence 
of 18 percent housing price uh, increases and all the money that that's going to free up uh, for consumers. And we have the fact that when nominal interest rates stay the same and inflation accelerates, real interest rates decline, and that means people borrow and spend more. That's what we have on the demand side, and all of that is pointing towards more inflation. On the supply side, we have maybe people will go back to work more when unemployment insurance ends. I actually think that's a significant factor, but the administration denies that unemployment insurance is relevant to uh, the uh, decisions. People talk about all the kids going back to school and that will enable workers uh, to go back. But as Jason Furman's work is gonna show, you don't really see that when you calculate it carefully as being a very large effect because the change in the labor force participation rate of people with kids and people without kids aren't really very different. So I'm not sure what the huge supply effect that people are looking towards. So what I see going forward is we're in a tight place now with current inflation at a reasonably high rate. And I see more on the side of increased demand than I see on the side of increased supply. And so that makes it seem pretty unlikely to me that this is all going to subside. It might happen. But I don't think it's going to happen without policy action. And policy, they are the more determined, the more clear the evidence that inflation is rising and inflation expectations are rising, the more determined the Fed is to say we're nowhere near beginning the process of um, tightening monetary policy. And I think potentially it's going to do some real damage to their credibility, and that's going to have important impacts for inflation expectations. And there you have Summer's Inflation Watch, the first episode actually with Larry Summers, our special contributor at Wall Street Week, and of course from Harvard. Finally, one more thought. The price is wrong. In one sense, this week was all about prices, the price of gas at the pump, producer prices, and of course, those spiking consumer prices. But there's more than just the economics and Fed reaction when it comes to prices. There's also, of course, the politics. Pocketbook issues always loom large in any election. And even if we may not blame the candidate for what we're paying at the pump or in the checkout line, we at least want the sense that they know what real people in the real world are paying for things. Which brings us to the political price gaffe. Perhaps originating with President George Herbert Walker Bush back in 1992, getting caught out in a presidential debate having no idea what a gallon of milk costs. And then Rudy Giuliani running for president in 2008, just hazarding a guess at the price of milk and getting it hopelessly wrong. History may have repeated itself, sort of, this week in the New York mayoral race, when leading candidates were asked how much an average house costs in Brooklyn. Former Wall Street banker Ray McGuire guessed it was between eighty dollars and $90,000. Well, we could forgive him because, after all, at City he didn't handle mortgages. Sean Donovan is a different story. He ran housing for Mayor Mike Bloomberg and then HUD for President Obama. And he guessed that a house in Brooklyn would go for about $100,000. 
Although afterwards, he did say that he just got confused because he had too many numbers rolling around in his head. The right answer? Well, that was $900,000. And leave it to Andrew Yang to nail it. Though former New York sanitation head Catherine Garcia was awfully close at $800,000. But if it's any consolation, that $80,000 could buy something in Brooklyn. According to Zillow, it may not be a house or even an apartment. There's a parking place in Brooklyn going for $80,000. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.